Section 7 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. Section 7. Chapter 3. Constantine's Successors to Jovian and the Struggle with Persia by Norman H. Baines. Part 1. Death had surprised Constantine when preparing to meet Persian aggression on the eastern frontier, and it seemed certain that the emperor had made no final provision for the succession to the throne, though later writers professed to know of a will which parceled out the Roman world among the members of his family. During his lifetime his three sons had been created Caesars, and while for his nephew Hannibalianus he had fashioned a kingdom in Asia, to his nephew Dalmatius had been assigned the Ripa Gothica. Possibly we are to see in these latter appointments an attempt to satisfy discontent at court. It may be that Optatus and Ablabius, espousing the cause of a younger branch of the imperial stock, had forced Constantine's hand, and that it was for this interference that they afterwards paid the penalty of their lives but it would seem a more probable suggestion that the Persian danger was thought to demand an older and more experienced governor than Constantius, while the boy Constance was deemed unequal to withstand the Goths in the north. At least the plan would appear to have been, in substance, that of a threefold division of spheres itself suggested by administrative necessity. Constantine was true to the principle of Diocletian, and it was only a superficial view which saw in this devolution of the central power a partition of the Roman Empire. Thus, on the emperor's death, there followed an interregnum of nearly four months. Constantine had, however, been successful in inspiring his soldiers with his own dynastic views. They feared new tumult and internal struggle, and in face of the twenty-year-old Constantius, felt themselves to be the masters. The armies agreed that they would have none but the sons of Constantine to rule over them, and at one blow they murdered all the other relatives of the dead emperor, save only the child Julian and Gallus, the future Caesar. In the latter's case, men looked to his own ill health to spare the executioner. At the same time perished Optatus and Ablabius. On September 9, 337, Constantius, Constantine II, and Constance each assumed the title of Augustus as joint emperors. His contemporaries were unable to agree how far Constantius was to be held responsible for this assassination. He alone of the sons of Constantine was present in the capital. It was he who stood to gain most by the deed the property of the victims fell into his hands, while it was said that he himself regarded his ill success in war and his childlessness as heaven's punishment, and that this murder was one of the three sins which he regretted on his deathbed. In later times, some, though considering the slaughter as directly inspired by the emperor, have yet held him justified and have viewed him as the victim of a tragic necessity of state. Certainty is impossible, 
but the circumstances suggest that inaction and not participation is the true charge against constantius the army which made and unmade emperors was determined that there should be no rival to question their choice the massacre had fatal consequences it was the seed from which sprang julian's mistrust and ill-will in a panegyric written for the emperor's eye he might admit the plea of compulsion but the deep-seated conviction remained that he was left an orphan through his cousin's crime in the summer of three hundred thirty eight the new rulers assembled in pannonia or possibly at viminacium in dacia not far from the pannonian frontier to determine their spheres of government according to their father's division it would seem spain britain and the two gauls fell to constantine the two italies africa illyricum and thrace were subjected to constance while southward from the propontis asia and the orient with pontus and egypt were entrusted to constantius it was thus to constantius that on the death of hannibalianus armenia and the neighboring allied tribes naturally passed but with this addition the eastern augustus appears to have remained content the whole of the territories subject to dalmatius that is the ripa gothica which probably comprised dacia mysia one and two and scythia perhaps even pannonia and noricum went to swell the share of constance who was now but fifteen years of age but though both the old and the new rome were thus in the hands of the most youthful of the three emperors the balance of actual power still seemed heavily weighted in favor of constantine the ruler of the west indeed he appears to have assumed the position of guardian over his younger brother it may be difficult to account for the moderation of constantius but julian points out that a war with persia was imminent the army was disorganized and the preparations for the campaign insufficient domestic peace was the empire's great need while constantius himself really strengthened his own position by renouncing further claims to widen his fear of government might have only served to limit his moral authority further he was perhaps unwilling to demand for himself a capital in which his kinsmen had been so recently murdered his self-denial should prove his innocence during the next thirteen years three great and more or less independent interests absorbed the energies of constantius the welfare and doctrine of the christian church the long-drawn and largely ineffective struggle against persia and lastly the assertion and maintenance of his personal influence in the affairs of the west it was to asia that constantius hastened after his meeting with his co-rulers before his arrival nisibis had successfully withstood a persian siege autumn three hundred thirty seven or spring three hundred thirty eight and the emperor at once made strenuous efforts to restore order and discipline among the roman forces profiting by his previous experience he organized a troop of mail-clad horsemen after the persian model the wonder of the time and raised recruits both for the cavalry and infantry regiments he demanded extraordinary contributions from the eastern provinces enlarged the river flotillas 
and generally made his preparations for rendering effective resistance to Persian attacks. The history of this border warfare is a tangled tale, and our information scanty and fragmentary. In Armenia, the fugitive king and those nobles who with him were loyal to Rome were restored to their country, but for the rest, the campaigns resolved themselves, in the main, into the successive forays across the frontiers of Persian or Roman troops. Though Ludi Persici, 13th to 17th May, were founded, though court orators could claim that the emperor had frequently crossed the Tigris, had raised fortresses on its banks, and laid waste the enemy's territory with fire and sword, yet the lasting results of these campaigns were sadly to seek. Now an Arab tribe would be induced to make common cause with Rome, as in 338, and to harry the foe. Now a Persian town would be captured, and its inhabitants transported and settled within the empire. But it was rare, indeed, for the armies of both powers to meet face to face in the open field. Constantius persistently declined to take the aggressive. He hesitated to risk any great engagement, which, even if successful, might entail a heavy loss in men whom he could ill afford to spare. Of one battle alone have we any detailed account. Sapor had collected a vast army. Conscripts of all ages were enlisted, while neighboring tribesmen served for Persian gold. In three divisions the host crossed the Tigris, and by the emperor's orders the frontier guards did not dispute the passage. The Persians occupied an entrenched camp at Hylia or Elia near Singera, while a distance of some 150 states lay between them and the Roman army. Even on Saper's advance, Constantius, true to his defensive policy, awaited the enemy's attack. It may be, as Libanius asserts, that Rome's best troops were absent at the time. Beneath their fortifications, the Persians had posted their splendid mailed cavalry, the cataphracti, and upon the ramparts, archers were stationed. On a midsummer morning, probably in the year 344, possibly 348, the struggle began. At midday, the Persians feigned flight in the direction of their camp, hoping that thus their horsemen would charge upon an enemy disorganized by long pursuit. It was already evening when the Romans drew near the fortifications. Constantius gave orders to halt until the dawn of the new day, but the burning heat of the sun had caused a raging thirst. The springs lay within the Persian camp, and the troops, with little experience of their emperor's generalship, refused to obey his commands and resume the attack. Clubbing the enemy's cavalry, they stormed the palisades. Saper fled for his life to the Tigris, while the heir to his throne was captured and put to death. As night fell, the victors turned to plunder and excess, and under cover of the darkness the Persian fugitives reformed and won back their camp. But success came too late, their confidence was broken, and with the morning the retreat began. Turning to the history of the West, after the meeting of the Augusti in 338, it would appear that Constantine forthwith claimed an authority superior to that of his co-rulers. He even legislated for Africa, although this province fell within the jurisdiction of Constance. The latter, however, soon asserted his complete independence of his elder brother, and in autumn, 
338 perhaps, after a victory on the Danube, assumed the title of Sarmaticus. At this time, 339, he probably sought to enlist the support of Constantius, surrendering to the latter Thrace and Constantinople. Disappointed of his hopes, it would seem that the ruler of the West now demanded for himself both Italy and Africa. Early in 340, he suddenly crossed the Alps, and at Aquileia rashly engaged the advanced guard of Constance, who had marched from Nysus in Dacia, where news had reached him of his brother's attack. Constantine, falling into an ambush, perished, and Constance was now master of Britain, Spain, and the Gauls, before April 9, 340. He proved himself a terror to the barbarians, and a general of untiring energy, who travelled incessantly, making light of extremes of heat and cold. In 341 and 342 he drove back an inroad of the Franks, and compelled that restless tribe, for whom inaction was a confession of weakness, to conclude a peace. He disregarded the perils of the English Channel in winter, and in January 343 crossed from Boulogne to Britain, perhaps to repel the Picts and Scots. His rule is admitted to have been, at the outset, vigorous and just, but the promise of his early years was not maintained. His exactions grew more intolerable, his private vices more shameless, while his favorites were allowed to violate the laws with impunity. It would seem, however, to have been his unconcealed contempt for the army which caused his fall. A party at court conspired with Marcellinus, count of the sacred largesses, and Magnentius, commander of the picked corps of Joviani and Herculiani, to secure his overthrow. Despite his Roman name, Magnentius was a barbarian. His father had been a slave, and subsequently a freedman in the service of Constantine. While at Augustodunum, during the absence of the emperor on a hunting expedition, Marcellinus, on the pretext of a banquet in honor of his son's birthday, feasted the military leaders, 18th of January, 350. Wine had flowed freely, and the night was already far advanced, when Magnentius suddenly appeared among the revelers, clad in the purple. He was straightway acclaimed Augustus. The rumors spread. Folk from the countryside poured into the city. Illyrian horsemen, who had been drafted into the Gallic regiments, joined their comrades, while the officers, hardly knowing what was afoot, were carried by the tide of popular enthusiasm into the usurper's camp. Constance fled for Spain, and at the foot of the Pyrenees, by the small frontier fortress of Helene, was murdered by Gaiso, the barbarian emissary of Magnentius. The news of his brother's death reached Constantius when the winter was almost over, but true to his principle never to sacrifice the empire to his own personal advantage, he remained in the east, providing for its safety during his absence and appointing Lucilianus to be commander-in-chief. The hardships and oppression which the provinces had suffered under Constance were turned by Magnentius to good account. A month after his usurpation, Italy had joined him, and Africa was not slow to follow. The army of Illyricum was wavering in its fidelity when, upon the advice of Constantia, sister of Constantius, Vatranio, magister peditum of the forces on the Danube, 
allowed himself to be acclaimed emperor. March the first at Mursa or Sirmium, and immediately appealed for help to Constantius. The latter recognized the usurper, sent Vetranio a diadem, and gave orders that he should be supported by the troops on the Pannonian frontier. Meanwhile, in Rome, the elect of the mob, Flavius Papilius Nepotianus, cousin of Constantius, enjoined a brief and bloody reign of some twenty-eight days, until, through the treachery of a senator, he fell into the hands of the soldiers of Magnentius, led by Marcellinus, the newly appointed Magister Officiorum. In the east, Nisibis was besieged for the third and last time. Sapir's object was, it would seem, permanently to settle a Persian colony within the city. The siege was pressed with unexampled energy. The Mygdonias was turned from its course, and thus, upon an artificial lake, the fleet plied its rams, but without effect. At length, under the weight of the waters, part of the city wall collapsed. Cavalry and elephants charged to storm the breach, but the huge beasts turned in flight and broke the lines of the assailants. A new wall rose behind the old, and though four months had passed, Jacobus, bishop of Nisibis, never lost heart. Then Saper learned that the Massagetae were invading his own country, and slowly the Persian host withdrew. For a time, the eastern frontier was at peace. A.D. 350. In the west, while Magnentius sought to win the recognition of Constantius, Vetranio played a waiting game. At last, the historians tell us, the Illyrian emperor broke his promises and made his peace with Magnentius. A common embassy sought Constantius, let him give Magnentius his sister, Constantia, to wife, and himself wed the daughter of Magnentius. Constantius wavered, but rejected the proposals and marched towards Sardica. Vetranio held the pass of Succi, the iron gate of latter times, but on the arrival of the emperor gave way before him. In Nisus, or as others say, in Sirmium, the two emperors mounted a rostrum, and Constantius harangued the troops, appealing to them to avenge the death of the son of the great Constantine. The army hailed Constantius alone as Augustus, and Vetranius sought for pardon. The emperor treated the usurper with great respect, and accorded him on his retirement to Prusa in Bithynia a handsome pension until his death six years later. Such is the story, but it can hardly fail to arouse suspicion. The greatest blot on the character of Constantius is his ferocity when once he fancied his superiority threatened, and here was both treason and treachery, for power had been stolen from him by a trick. All difficulties are removed, if Vetranio throughout never ceased to support Constantius, even though the emperor may have doubted his loyalty for a time when he heard that the prudent general had anticipated any action on the part of Magnentius by himself seizing the key position the pass of Succi. It is obvious that their secret was worth keeping. It is ill to play with armies, as Constantius and Vetrania had done, while the clemency of an outraged sovereign offered a fair theme to the panegyrists of the emperor. Marching against one usurper in the west, 
Constantius was anxious to secure the East to the dynasty of Constantine. The recent success of Lucilianus may have appeared dangerously complete. The emperor's nephew Gallus had, it would seem, for some time followed the court, and while at Sirmium, Constantius determined to create him Caesar. At the same time, March 15, 351, his name was changed into Flavius Claudius Constantius. He was married to Constantia and became Frater Augusti. Forthwith, the prince and his wife started for Antioch. Meanwhile, Magnentius had not been idle. He had raised huge sums of money in Gaul, while Franks, Saxons, and Germans trooped to the support of their fellow countrymen, whose army now outnumbered that of Constantius. The latter, however, took the offensive in the spring of 351, and uniting Vetranio's troops with his own, marched towards the Alpine passes. An ambush of Magnentius posted in the defiles of Atrans inflicted severe loss on his advance guard, and the emperor was compelled to withdraw. Elated by this success, the usurper now occupied Pannonia, and passing Petovio made for Sirmian. Throughout his reign, the policy of Constantius was marked by an anxious desire to husband the military forces of the empire, and even now he was ready to compromise and to avoid the fearful struggle between the armies of Gaul and Illyricum. He dispatched Philippus, offering to acknowledge Magnentius as co-Augustus in the west, if he would abandon any claim to Italy. The ambassador was detained, but his proposals, after some delay, rejected. The usurper was so certain of victory that his envoy, the senator Titianus, could even counsel Constantius to abdicate. An attack of Magnentius on Sicilia was repulsed, and an effort to cross the save was also unsuccessful. Constantius then retired, preferring to await the enemy in open country where he could turn to the best advantage his superiority in cavalry. At Sibale, the army took up an entrenched position, while Magnentius advanced on Sirmium, hoping to meet with no resistance. Foiled in this, he marched to Mursa, in the rear of Constantius' army. The latter was forced to relieve the town, and here, on September 28th, the decisive battle was fought. Behind Constantius flowed the Danube, and on his right the Drave. For him, flight must mean destruction. On both wings he posted mounted archers, and in the forefront the mailed cavalry, cataphracti, which he had himself raised after the Persian model. In the center the heavy-armed infantry were stationed, and in the rear the bowmen and slingers. Before the struggle, Silvanus with his horsemen deserted Magnentius. From late afternoon till far into the night the battle raged. The cavalry of Constantius routed the enemy's right wing, and this drew the whole line into confusion. Magnentius fled, but Marcellinus continued the fight. The Gauls refused to acknowledge defeat. Some few escaped through the darkness, but thousands were driven into the river or cut down upon the plain. It is said that Magnentius lost 24,000 men, Constantius 30,000. The usurper took refuge in Aquileia and garrisoned the passes of the Alps. Although his overtures were rejected, and though his schemes to murder the Caesar Gallus 
and thus to raise difficulties for Constantius in the east were foiled, yet the exhaustion of his enemies and the approach of winter made pursuit impossible. Constantius forthwith proclaimed an amnesty for all the adherents of Magnentius, except only those immediately implicated in his brother's murder. Many deserted the pretender and escaped by sea to the victor. In the following year, 352, Constantius forced the passes of the Julian Alps, while his fleet dominated the Po, Sicily, and Africa. At the news, Magnentius fled to Gaul, and by November, the emperor was already in Milan, abrogating all the fugitives' measures. In 353, Constantius crossed the Cardian Alps, and at length, three years and a half after his assumption of the purple, Magnentius was surrounded in Lyon by his own troops, and finding his cause hopeless, committed suicide, while his Caesar, Decentius, also perished by his own hand. End of section 7